We want lawyers to be skeptical, to ask questions. The problem is when it comes to relating to other people, those thoughts around trust, those behaviors around trust are the actual antithesis of what people need to thrive. You build trust by caring, by integrity, reliability. I do what I say I'm going to do. If trust is the opposite of skepticism, which it is, I have to take off my lawyer hat completely in order to build interpersonal trust. There's also a perception out there of how lawyers should show up and interact. And if we're not able to satisfy that perception, does that create a barrier in terms of our ability to connect? The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Hearing. I'm your host, Becky Anderson, and I am about to be joined by three wonderful guests who are going to talk to me about lawyers and trust. Hi, I'm Michael Callier. I'm the head of global consulting for Factor Law. Factor Law is the market leader in conducting complex legal work at scale. I'm Anne Reinhardt. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at the law firm of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, an AMLAW 100 law firm located in the Midwest of the United States. In my role as a Chief Strategy Officer, I'm focused on all things growth, growth of people, growth of clients, and growth of our business. I'm Dr. Larry Richard. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Lawyer Brain LLC. I work with the top AMLAW law firms and the top law departments all around the world on issues having to do with people, organization, and behavior. That includes things like training, development, leadership, teams, coping with change, and well-being. Now, just like every good lawyer, I like a nice, clean definition. And so the thing that I'm going to start by asking my fantastic panelists today, Michael, Anne, and Larry, is how do you define trust? And why does it matter? The cross-examination. Trust is a tricky word because it actually has several different meanings. And I think that we're using just one of them today. So let me give you three possibilities to choose from. Number one, trust often means I can count on somebody in the sense of reliability. So I give an assignment to an associate I trust that that associate is going to deliver. That's one use of the word, and it's probably the farthest away from the pure meaning of the word trust. The second is what I call integrity trust. If I give my car to you to borrow, I trust that you're going to return it in one piece and nothing's going to be missing and you're a stand-up person. You're not going to do something dishonest when I entrust you and rely on your honesty. And the third one, the one I think we're talking about today, is interpersonal trust or emotional trust, where I feel psychologically safe in being myself with you. And that's the most important kind for sustained performance in organization. It's the foundation of leadership. It's the foundation of relationships. It's the foundation of diversity and inclusion and many other things that we value, engagement and so forth. Well, that's an excellent definition. But the reason that I was very keen to talk to you three, because I have seen some of the work that you have done and the discussions you have done on trust, is what is lawyers' relationship to trust? And I suppose, why is it very sticky? My perspective is that lawyers' 
relationship with trust is very little trust in trust. <laughs> in a few minutes, I think it would be good for Larry to talk a bit about the lawyer personality and his research about the why behind the lack of trust. But lawyers are trained. Lawyers' personalities are such that there is very little trust for lots of good reasons. We want lawyers to be skeptical. We want lawyers to ask questions. We want lawyers to not assume that what somebody is saying is the truth. We want lawyers to assume the opposite of sometimes what's written in a document is actually what was meant to be placed in that document. Those are all really good lawyering skills. The point, though, and the problem is that when it comes to relationships and when it comes to working in teams and building business and relating to other people, those thoughts around trust, those skills around trust, those behaviors around trust are the actual antithesis of what people need to thrive, working together to creating opportunities, to solving real complex problems, and to retaining people in workplaces. And so you have this balance of this lawyer skill set, which we need lawyers to have for the work they do, and then the lawyer skill set working against everything else we need to be doing in our businesses. I would add to that just to say the concept that we learn foundationally during our lawyer training in, in law school and at law firms oftentimes, zealous advocacy, there's this idea that our view of the world will be skewed in favor of our clients, where we take a very strong but imbalanced position in favor of our clients' views and in favor of protecting our clients' position against some opposition. And that opposition ultimately represents threat. And so when we talk about trust, one way to look at it is trust that you will not harm me. Maybe not physically, but as Dr. Richard said, emotionally or psychologically, and in large part, will not harm my client. And that presents a very interesting and almost antagonistic view and environment that, as Anne said, shows up in a way that isn't always conducive to collaboration. So there's a part of the profession that calls for and requires that skew. But in a more complex world where team decision-making, uh, collaboration is necessary, that inclination creates some interesting barriers that we will ultimately have to both recognize and overcome. I recognize an awful lot, Anne and Michael, of, of both of those situations from my own legal career. And I'd just like to kind of skip back a little bit to the research that you have done, Dr. Richard, on this point, which I have an uncomfortable feeling is going to be like holding a little mirror up to my own soul, but I'm ready for it. So tell me how bad it is. All right. Well, here comes the mirror, Becky. So building on what Anne and Michael said, there are two layers that we have to concern ourselves with. The first, and Anne mentioned both of them. One is the profession cultivates a mistrustful attitude. We get trained in law school to, quote, think like a lawyer. And that thinking like a lawyer is to look for problems and issues and to not take things for granted, to not give the benefit of the doubt, to not trust 
people without questioning their motives and making sure that there's nothing hidden. All of that is part and parcel of being a good lawyer. And then on top of that, you ask the question, what kind of people would go into a profession where that's what you do every day? And the answer is people with certain personality traits like very high skepticism. And so we have the deck stacked against us. We have two layers of the, the training and then the personality who likes fitting into that training. And so we walk around with a very skeptical mindset. And if you think about what does it take to build interpersonal trust, it's really two primary qualities. Number one, it takes perspective taking or cognitive empathy. I can see what your experience is. I can understand what you need. I can understand the perspective that you have on this particular transaction or dispute as opposed to where I'm coming from. And number two, you build trust by basically caring, by integrity, by reliability. I do what I say I'm going to do. And so going back to what Michael said, this, I love the way you phrase it, Michael, this idea that I am supposed to be in balance. I'm supposed to take the side of my client. I'm not supposed to be a neutral person. I'm, I'm not impartial. I'm partial as you can be because I represent you, the client, and I'm going to do everything in my power to protect you. That almost defines that I have to be skeptical of anybody else. And so if trust is the opposite of skepticism, which it is, I basically have to take off my lawyer hat completely in order to build interpersonal trust. So what this boils down to is for us to be trusting individuals, trusting human beings, we have to live in a completely different world than the world we live in when we have our lawyer hat on. It's like we have to be in two completely separate worlds. We have to be good lawyers and skeptical and detached in one role and interpersonally vulnerable. That caring is really vulnerability. So empathy and vulnerability, empathy and caring, it's the same thing. And vulnerability, my God, that word scares lawyers because we're all trained, don't let them see anything confidential. Keep everything on a need to know basis. Don't let anything through the cracks. I sometimes have talked to lawyers about something completely non-lawyerly. We're talking about something having to do with the back office, about hiring or about engaging your people or something like that. And I asked them a simple question about something that I need to know about their firm's culture in order to help them solve the problem they hired me to solve. And their answer is, I can't tell you that. Because the need to know the lawyer hat is still on. And that we have a moment there where, where we have to discuss, we're not actually negotiating a legal transaction here. We're trying to solve a problem that you are worried about. And so it's very hard for lawyers to make that shift from need to know, nobody else can reveal anything. I won't be vulnerable in both the emotional and the intellectual sense to the opposite, which is I have to be a human being in order to build that trust. That's fascinating. As you were talking, I was playing in my own mind situations in my own practice where I've come across exactly that sort of situation. But I was wondering whether Anne and Michael, if you have got any, I dare I ask, stories or horror stories, but examples of where that lack of trust has really damaged important relationships 
in your work as a lawyer. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. But I was wondering whether Anne and Michael, if you have got any, I dare I ask, stories or horror stories, but examples of where that lack of trust has really damaged important relationships in your work as a lawyer. I, I think I have endless stories, Becky, but because I am somebody who wants to continue to build trust with the people I work with, I'm going to tell stories about how I haven't built trust and how that has impacted the work that I do. One of my own self-reflections as I have spent my time in my career working only with lawyers is a lifelong frustration, frankly, around the lawyer personality type and the immense skepticism that most lawyers exhibit. And probably for the first half of my career, I wanted to really reject that. And if I go back in time and kind of think about my own behavior, I frankly worked against the lawyer personality type because of my frustration. So, you know, some key examples, Becky, knowing that no matter what I was trying to roll out in the law firm I worked in, be it a change of procedure or process or a creation of a great opportunity, I ultimately knew that no matter what I said, I would be met with resistance and skepticism. But instead of thinking about how I might stack the deck to create a dynamic where my lawyer colleagues would be more accepting of what I was rolling out, I would choose to just roll it out anyway and not want to help them get on board because, gosh darn it, they should just get on board because I'm brilliant and I've got all these great ideas. And I have a whole history of things that as I rolled them out, I met the wall of resistance, the wall of skepticism from my lawyer colleagues. And what that would cause me to do is have to go back and redo things. So there are times where I have created a new process and didn't go through the steps of building trust with my colleagues that I had been thoughtful about what I was doing, that I understood how their concerns over particular impacts that the process or procedure or um, new initiative would have on other people, I just would roll it out. So about 10 years ago, I started spending much more time with uh, Dr. Richard. I had always been interested in his research since my time as a law student and some early work that I did in the Career Services Office. But spending more time with Larry really understanding, okay, what is this personality type? And then what are the kinds of things that one can do to work with it? instead of against it. And I think lots of people will talk about the frustrations they have, particularly when they work in roles like Michael and I do, where we're driving change and innovation and trying to get people excited about things they've never done before. 
If you think back to a lawyer personality type, which is skeptical and wants to know what's going to happen and is resistant to things that are outside the typical frame that they think through, all of the work we do falls outside of where they're comfortable. And so I've worked in my career to really create a way of helping the lawyer want to be more trusting, want to be more accepting. And that is all my own skill set helping them do that. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that um, when we get to that point. Michael, I'm sure you have stories as well. I do have one. And I, I will use a story where I was the the culprit, so to speak, in terms of distrust in a way that backfired. So from 2011 to 2014, I lived in mainland China. I was there first to study Chinese, and then I was the general counsel and director of China operations for a European uh, business consultancy. That was their boots on the ground in mainland. And so I did stakeholder management, I did operation support, and I did legal work small company, a lot of hats. One day, I was ultimately sitting with our client, an aluminum manufacturing company in southern China, one of our major clients, and across the table was a a Japanese prospective strategic partner that wanted to manufacture a particular product in our client, our Chinese client's facilities. And the Japanese strategic business partner, a potential partner, had a a Chinese translator with him. And I had a a Chinese translator with me. Now, I had spent the last year working on my Chinese language proficiency. So there was a certain measure of pride associated with this. That was a a, a piece of of the puzzle. But then I think there was also the distrust of communicating through someone else during the course of this negotiation rather than uh, tackling it myself because I felt like something would get lost literally in translation. And so I proceeded to take my broken, busted Chinese and try to negotiate this deal with the translator sitting next to me. And I'm sure she was just absolutely freaking out about my poor grammar, I was missing something from an etiquette standpoint and so on, but I charged ahead. And as you would suspect, we lost the deal. Maybe it was a good thing that we lost the deal. I don't know, (laughs) but we lost the deal nonetheless. And in large part, it was because of my unwillingness to let go. And that is a big part, I believe, of trust. It's that taking your hands off the wheel uh, in a collaborative environment, you have to understand that We can't achieve the objective singularly. There will be a a bunch of different folks, maybe from different walks of life, culture, skill set, whatever it may be, coming together to achieve one consolidated goal. And if we take up every single lane, we don't create space for others. And that's what happened to me. And there's more to talk about with that story about the ultimate consequences after losing the deal, but not a great result and because of my own lack of trust. I think what I really love about your story, Michael, not that yours wasn't excellent, Anne, but what really got to me about your story is that all those situations as a lawyer where you think that being sceptical 
is benefiting your client. It really makes me think actually how many situations where as a lawyer, I think I'm doing the right thing by being skeptical. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. And maybe my intense skepticism, which I am wearing proudly as a badge of my profession, which I'm getting paid for, how often is that actually getting in the way of doing a really good deal for everybody involved? Do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Richard? Well, I have actually a, a personal reminisce about that. I spent 10 years as a litigator and uh, I tried a lot of cases. And I remember distinctly a couple of cases where my opponent did some what I'll call grandstanding, you know, kind of what you see on lawyer TV shows. You know, I object, Your Honor, uh, you know, with flourishes and drama. And it backfired. You could see that these individuals were alienating the jury, or in one case, the judge. And it really matters. They, they think they're doing something you know, extreme to defend their client, but they're not taking into account the analog behavior. They're worried about the content. Every piece of communication that we make has two layers. One is the what, and the other is the how. The what we call the content. You know, What's the information I'm transmitting? And the how is often called analog behavior, the sound, the volume, the speed, the timber, the breathing patterns, the starts and stops, the dialect, all of these things convey meaning. And, you know, if I said to my wife, I love you, I think I would be on a road toward, uh, if not divorce, a very unpleasant week because the words only communicate according to one study that's cited over and over. It's a study that's 50 years old by now. But this study is still good law, as we say. And it said that 7% of your communication is conveyed by the words, by the content. And the 93% is conveyed by body language, tone of voice, space, if you're in visual contact, and so forth. So we must pay attention to those analog components. May I raise one point about that? And this is for, I'm very curious to hear what, what Dr. Richards and Anne have to say about this. So this is interesting. So when I came back from China, a few years later, I enrolled in this leadership program, two-year program around adaptive leadership. I don't know if you all have heard about the model, but it's a, it's a really wonderful approach. It's all about collective decision-making and learning. So how do you create an environment that allows for collective decision-making and learning with this concept that the smartest person in the room is the room. And it was around that time that I started to understand the importance of, you know, trust and empathy and vulnerability and all of these things that if you walk into a law firm professing, you will be in immediate trouble. And we certainly didn't learn that in law school or at the firm. And I started to absorb and adopt some of those uh, elements and really changed my mindset. And I deployed that in a subsequent role back in the States. I had general counsel responsibilities for the better part of a year with this, this organization. And I was also the corporate secretary. And I recall being at a board meeting and you know doing the corporate secretary stuff and took a break for a moment. And one of the board members came up to me and he said something along the lines of, you know, Michael, working with you is not at all like working with a lawyer. <laughs> and I didn't know how to take that. It, it, was that a compliment? Was he insulting me? I wasn't sure. And so there seems to be this tension between showing up in a way that the, you know, the folks on this call believe strongly is better 
and more effective in terms of particularly for complex problem solving. But I think there's also a perception out there of how lawyers should show up and interact. And that perception is oftentimes held by our audience and our potential collaborators. And if we're not able to satisfy that perception, does that create a barrier in terms of our ability to connect with those folks, that potential collaborator or client, because they don't trust us. I was actually going to say that Anne, you had said earlier, what can we do to work with the lawyer personality? But I actually wanted to flip it back on you and say, how do we get clients to trust us when our whole deal is being slightly obnoxiously sceptical? I think that, and it goes to Michael's point, this awakening, this awareness that one's behavior has a huge impact in how other people respond and that there is a way to be a zealous advocate. There is a way to be skeptical and to um, dot the I's and cross the T's in the work that you're doing and to ask questions and to do the lawyerly work, but to add a relationship piece with the other people in the room or on the Zoom or in the phone conversation that is based in human relationships and developing trust through emotion and understanding what humans need and what humans need is different than what a legal document needs. It's different than what a legal argument needs. One of the things that we're doing at Taft is talking about leadership in a very broad perspective but I've spent a lot of time just going straight at the skepticism with our lawyers and our leaders of, yep, I know you're going to be skeptical about this. And I get that. But I'm going to model for you some ways to potentially think about this and some ways to think about how you relate to other people. And just hitting it right on the head that I know they're going to be skeptical, which kind of causes them to go, oh, okay, she gets me. And then what we've been doing is I've asked them to just try to run some experiments, run some experiments with your client, run some human experiments with the people. No, we're not talking like in a lab, but uh, in the actual workplace, human experiments with your colleagues, start to say more positive things to them. Instead of starting with the negative or why somebody's wrong, start with a positive. Start with, wow, I really liked it when you did X. And just observe what happens. You can come back and prove me wrong. You can come back and say, Anne, I was right to be skeptical because people don't like it when I'm nice to them. Well, guess what? As these experiments are happening, as we've added increased communications that start with positives, the exact opposite is happening. So to your point and your question, Becky, our lawyers can show up in ways that develop strong relationships with people that do not impact the legal work product negatively. If anything, because you're calming everybody in a room or on a phone or in Zoom or whatever communication you're having, we all want to feel like we're connected to others in a way that helps us feel good about connecting with others. And we're living in an incredibly complicated time right now. And the more that we can all feel safe with the people we're with, the better off we're gonna be in terms of solving complex problems. And so I've been on a journey of helping lawyers calm enough and be willing enough to listen 
to try some things that then they realize start to work. And to Michael's point in some of his stories, it's, oh, that actually worked. I'm going to try it again. But I start always with, prove me wrong. I know you're skeptical about this. That's what I expect. Show me that I'm wrong, that people don't want this. And then they come back, they're like, wow, Anne, I got the nicest note back from my client. I got the nicest note back from my colleague. Somebody said I did a great job. And that breeds this continuing of building safety and trust with people because the lawyer receives kudos for it and feels good about it but you have to create the right dynamic for them to be willing to try to do that. Yes, I have a lot to add to that. So I love the notion that Anne introduced of telling lawyers you understand their skepticism first. I always do that as well because I have the data. I have 30 years of data showing that this is the most skeptical profession and not just mildly more than the public, wildly, not mildly more skeptical than the general public. And once I tell them, I know that's who you are, it kind of signals you can relax, you're being seen. And so that really helps. It seems counterintuitive if you think about that logically, but in you know the way human nature works, that's very soothing to people to be seen and heard. Number two, I agree with both Anne's point and, and Michael's. People assume often that their lawyers should be tough but when you look at that, there are a lot of untested assumptions there. And when you introduce, as Anne has done, opportunities for people to be more human, it always pays off. It's not most of the time good. It always pays off because we're human beings first and lawyers second. And when we tap into that layer of humanity, of vulnerability, it builds trust. And that captures the human part of us. There are exceptions, of course. There are certain clients, we all have had them, who want us just to be the, the most obnoxious person in the room. If anyone's been following the news of Elon Musk, he came out with several statements showing that he was dissatisfied with lawyers in his legal department that were going to be kind and look for a middle ground. He didn't want that. His exact quote was, there will be blood and he said, I'm going to build a hardcore legal department. Well, more power to him if he thinks that that's what will work. I personally disagree based on my research and my experience, but I know that there are people out there who, who want that killer instinct instead of somebody who is collaborative. I wanna finish with one last thought. I have a friend, a very close friend, who was a practicing lawyer and now does resolution work. He's a mediator and arbitrator. When he was first practicing law, he got a job in a law firm and they took a stack of cases, you know, file folders, paper folders that we used to use back in the old days and dumped them on his desk and said, okay, these are your files. See if you can work through them. They were litigation matters that were unresolved and they wanted him to litigate or negotiate, you know, some settlement in all of these cases. And they assumed it would take months for him to work through these. Well, at the end of the following week, he goes into his boss's office and says, okay, what should I do next? And the boss said, well, what do you mean? You have all those files I gave you. Oh, he said, I've settled them all. And the boss said, what do you mean you've settled them all? He said, I settled them all. He says, how the hell could you have settled all those cases? He said, I don't know, I called up the lawyer on the other side and I listened. And that was the end of that. 
I love that story. I love that story because I used to be an in-house lawyer and it was a point of pride for us that any disputes we had never, ever made it to court, but that every single one was settled. And as an in-house lawyer, it would have been, I know that you're an in-house lawyer as well, Michael, it would have been the worst thing would be to actually get to the court steps. That was to be avoided at all costs. Because that was that was the point of failure for me as an in-house lawyer. So I love that. So we're very coming close to the end now. But before we go, I wanted to just ask first Michael and then Anne, what is the one thing that you would recommend a lawyer to do to improve their relationship with trust today? I would say practice. And that's low-hanging fruit. Because lawyers are completely accustomed to the almost lifelong journey of improving their lawyer capabilities through practice. That's a fundamental component, I think, of being a lawyer. We can do the same thing and improve our capability with regard to human interaction and what I define it these days as leadership through practicing empathy, vulnerability, active listening skills. All of these things are learnable. And I think Dr. Richards and Anne will reinforce that. I can say that for myself. I learned them. I put them into practice. It's made me a better lawyer, a better consultant, a better leader, a better husband, a better person. And that's the cool thing about these techniques and this concept of having a more intimate and better relationship with trust. It doesn't just help us professionally. It helps us personally. I'd say two things. One, being willing to ask oneself what they need on a daily basis to feel trust in others. So starting with, what do I need? What makes me feel trustworthy with somebody else? Why would I trust Michael and Larry? What are the kinds of things that I would need to see from them so that I feel a sense of trust? And have that reflection frequently from your own personal space. And and that is often hard for lawyers to start. They often want to reject the, I don't have any needs, and I just am a hard-powered lawyer, and I'm tough, and all those kinds of things. But underneath all that tough exterior is often immense putty in terms of what lawyers and and any human really needs in terms of thriving. And so starting some honest conversations about what helps me feel trust. The other thing I recommend is that people then turn outward and start watching other people that seem to have people follow them and good results happen. So in your place of work, be it a law firm or a corporation or a law school or wherever you are, who are the people that everyone seems to follow? What do they do that gets them those followers? Why are people willing to listen to what they have to say? Why are they willing to work hard? Why do they speak positive things about those individuals? And we all have those people in our workplaces that anyone in any time would say, I would love to go work with Michael. Oh my gosh, to be on Michael's team is phenomenal. Okay, well, what does Michael do? And start watching Michael and how he behaves and acts and the things he says. Sometimes I recommend people just carry a little notebook and write it down. What did he do with his face when he gave some difficult news? 
How did he praise somebody? What did he do when he had to change the dynamic in the room? Watch for that. And you will start to see that the people, by and large, there are some examples of people who rule by you know, intensity and negativity. But most of the time when push comes to shove and someone has a choice as to whether they're going to work on that person's team or not, they run. So look for the people that everyone's lining up to work with and watch what they do. I love that. That's excellent advice. Thank you very much for coming on. I've really enjoyed this, actually. It's a topic which I didn't realise was quite as close to my heart as it turned out to be, but it brought up a lot of memories of my own legal career and made me look in that mirror. Uh, you know, I'm just going to have to say that, look in that mirror and think really closely about all of those things that I can do in my job to engender more trust. So thank you very much for giving me some really interesting food for thought. Thank you ever so much for listening, everybody. You know what? This was a particularly thought-provoking episode for me, both on a personal and a professional level. And I can see myself using some of the advice and suggestions from Anne, Michael and Larry in both my personal and professional lives. And I hope the same is true of you. So thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't subscribed and liked, then please do. You don't want to miss any of our future content. Goodbye. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.